Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello. Today on the Loopcast, I have David Cleon and Kelsey Atherton, and we are discussing why the end of history kind of sucks. So I, that title of this, of this episode it seems kind of inflammatory and kind of broad, but in the debate with myself and with Chelsea and with others, we were trying to come up with a way to describe the show. And we came up with the title, The End of History Sucks. So this is kind of a play on Francis Fukuyama, who wrote this book towards the end of the Cold War, saying that basically democracy and capitalism had won. So that was in the 80s and 90s. Flash forward 20, 30 years, we're in 2020. And it just seems like the tail end of this thesis of the end of history is kind of playing out in a very negative sort of way. So my guests today, David Cleon and Kelsey Atherton, are going to help me explore what does it mean to be living at the end of history? More specifically, what does it mean to be in this transitional weird state that we're in politically right now? What does it feel like to experience collapse, not just from a personal perspective, but putting it in a political and historical perspective? And then putting Make America Great and sort of this uptick of nationalism and extremism that we're, ex- we're experiencing in the United States. What does that mean? How do we put that into, the con- into this context of collapse, of transition, of whatever, of this cycle, so to speak? So please uh, welcome my guests, David, David Cleon and Kelsey Atherton. Hey, guys. Hey. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Pleasure course. to be here. Good, awesome. So I want to start off with you, David, because yeah. you have this interesting article in Foreign Policy. We'll have a link when we publish the show, sort of calling the United States the sick man of North America. And so when, when we use that phrase, the sick man of Europe, sick man of North America, sick man of whatever, it's kind of this idea or meme. But you, you had a very specific take on what it meant to be the sick man of North America. So if you can just kind of walk us through that article and sort of the implications that you bring out. Yeah, so I wrote that piece in April of 2019. So over a year ago, well over a year ago, well before any of us knew that we were gonna be living through a horrible pandemic that would wreck our economy worse by far than it was in, in 2008, which was bad enough. But I'm not claiming any you know, special credit as a prophet. I didn't predict any of that. I was talking about what was already very clear well before 2019, I think, and riffing on a theme that I've developed in writings for a number of publications since uh, really the end of 2016, maybe even earlier than that, which is that the notion of America as this kind of like decisive sovereign superpower in the world is is in need of revision. So um, I'm paraphrasing myself in the foreign policy article here, but I, I say something like, you know, that the, the dominant paradigms since the end of the Cold War for understanding international relations 
have either been one of unipolarity in which the US is the, the global hegemon, or perhaps if you're a you know, neoconservative, the US should be the global hegemon and it should assert itself as such. But you could also be a kind of far left critic of imperialism and have basically the same take in reverse. Or the, the only real alternative to that has been a sort of assertion of, of multipolarity in which there are other competing powers like China and Russia, but the U.S. is still clearly number one. It's still by far the most powerful country in the world. And, you know, according to most obvious indicators, that's, that's been true, Kelsey, in my whole life, basically, or close to it. You know, the U.S. has been the leading military superpower by, by any normal measure, and it's been the richest country by any normal measure. And it's had a kind of, you know, hegemonic grasp over global popular culture and, and the English language and so on. And, and, and to an extent, all of that is still the case. But... What I saw as the flaw in this theory is that it implies that the U.S. is is a sort of single unified actor with a with a unified sense of its or or if not a fully unified sense because obviously we have debates and elections and so on you know within a narrow set of parameters a, a kind of unified sense of its role in the world you know we might debate the wisdom of this or that war or policy. But, but generally speaking, like the U.S. maintains primacy, hegemony, empire, whatever you want to call it, and it's not challenged. And everyone who is an actor in the U.S. political system at a basic level believes in that. You know, they, they can argue about the details. And the argument that I put forward in this piece and, and, and in other pieces I've written is that the, there's a major flaw here, which is that it doesn't allow for the uh, corruption of the imperial center, you know, through, for instance, the total evisceration of campaign finance laws and the, you know, culture of, of, of lobbying by foreign governments in Washington and, and by corporations that, you know, oil companies and financial companies and tech companies that have transnational interests. And you know, by, by the forces of globalization that, for instance, Fukuyama championed, and, and, and that the effect of, of all of this is to create a, a supposed imperial center that is not really responsible in any way to, to anything an ordinary citizen might recognize as, as their interest or as a, the quote-unquote national interest. Or, or as maybe a universal interest in, in, you know, a kind of like liberal global golden age. None of that is really being defended. It's instead, as I put it, it's for sale to the highest bidder. And the highest bidder might well be a foreign government. And something that I find whenever I go back to this piece and I try to reference it as I write about and understand the world is that this is a remaking of the state, which had always, right, the American state had always had a place for capital at the table. But what is particularly striking about this, like, this end of history sort of period, or at least the, which, you know, matches with the neoliberal turn and the uh, great influx of money um, into politics is that it is capital alone at the table and not just American capital at the table, but the but it is the sort of extracted wealth of the world, however it has been collected in whatever form of various oligarchs, domestic or international. And it is sort of their money that determines the structure 
of U.S. policy to a greatly outsized degree, and especially um, when we talk about how foreign policy gets determined, right? You can look at various think tanks by their sponsors and see that they are sort of proxy forces for like which Gulf state is lobbying which way for which angle. And it's more than that, but it's really a huge part of it is that if you are an American in this empire, it is on the the resources of the state are that have been extracted in part from you are being marshaled at the whims of people who will never be accountable to you by virtue of the government answering far more to this to wealth than to its own citizenry. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And for a little bit of kind of, you know, where does this come out of in, in the, the discourse war, wars, not to get too into it, but like, you know, I, I've been thinking about a lot of these themes for a while, I would say back during the Obama administration, but I really started dealing with them more in the first year or so of the Trump administration because, you know, back then, Russiagate was the inescapable topic. And I consider myself to be on the left. You know, I supported Bernie Sanders twice, and I, I you know, basically support that version of, of what it means to be a progressive across the board. And, and I travel in left media circles, but I sometimes found myself at odds with other outspoken voices in left media because they were very dismissive of uh, the Russiagate story for a variety of reasons, most of which I think were invalid, although I understand the, you know, why, why they would object to some of the kind of red scare stuff going on on, on MSNBC or, or among some liberal pundits or politicians, some of that was indulgent or, or irresponsible. I agree with that. But, but the, you know, the basic story that, that was sort of unfolding behind, before our eyes of, of, of a foreign government interfering in our election was something I took seriously. And, 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 and I don't regret taking it seriously as, as I think a false bit of conventional wisdom held by Republicans, but also certain voices on certain parts of the left, you know, holds it to have been a, a hoax and a hysteria today. And I think, no, I mean, as, as a new story actually broke earlier this week that, you know, makes it pretty clear that most of what we think makes up Russiagate is basically true. It happened. Now, whether it matters politically is a, or, is, or is important to freak out about is a separate debate. But, you know, I would get into arguments with, for instance, Glenn Greenwald about this. And back when it really was the central topic, and he would do this sort of two-step where he would go from saying this didn't happen, you know, that, that we have no proof it was the Russians who hacked the DNC, this is all a hoax, to, well, okay, sure, it probably did happen, but, you know, don't we do this all the time in other countries, like, you know, when we overthrew Allende or, or when we installed the Shah of Iran, you know, how is that any different? And uh, which, you know, I was more sympathetic to that point. There are some similarities. Or he would say, how is what Russia is doing different from what the Israel lobby does or what Saudi Arabia or Chinese capitalists do? And I, and I would hear that. And instead of hearing whataboutism, I thought, well, you know, Glenn, Glenn and his elk kind of have a point here. But that's not a reason to you know, dismiss what, what's just happened with Russia. It's a reason to create a kind of integrated theory that can account for all these different things. And I think writing about this a few different ways led me to this foreign policy article, which makes a kind of unified statement. 
aspect of, of you know, that, that these are all versions of the same problem. And they do reflect at the end of the day, not to take away responsibility from Russia or Saudi Arabia or China or any of these other governments, but what they really tell us is something about what the U.S. has done to itself and to its, to its political institutions in a way that I think has compromised its sovereignty and its integrity as a national project. That's kind of interesting because you, it almost seems like on one hand, there's this sort of degradation of sovereignty that's occurring from within, right? So it's nobody is taking over pieces of America physically. It's the power of wealth or of extreme wealth, I should say, being applied for influence. And so how, what is, does that change the nature of collapse and implosion if if the weakness is not coming from people taking over territory but rather using wealth to achieve their own political aims and sort of diluting or marginalizing the aims of the state or as you pointed out in as you pointed out in Russiagate sort of using the grift to sort of subvert politics in such a way that like the big example for me for Russiagate is that Paul Manafort was able to change the the Republican platform to not favor Ukraine as much or dilute that language of supporting Ukraine versus Russia. So how do we, going back to my question, how do we understand this tension between, you know, an implosion of sovereignty internally and then its sort of reflection in security and the you know, national security aims of the state. Kelsey, do you want to take this one? <laughs> yeah, I can start. Um, so one of the things I think that is really interesting to look about this is um, U.S. foreign policy, the apparatus is formally designed to be somewhat insulated from democratic pressure to begin with, and by somewhat, I mean very. And this is um, something we talk about a lot on a fellow traveler's blog, but you have this, if you look at like the 1947 uh, National Security Act and the, the state that followed it, the idea was you had the bunch of people who had just lived through World War II. They see kind of the peril there. There's a lot that they're worried about. There's a lot of people who are like staunchly anti-communist and there's the experience of having just fought a war against some fairly autocratic states. And what they do is they build a sort of apparatus that is determined by the executive and insular within like a kind of shared elite. It's why we talk about um, foreign policy is like this internally, like there's a DC foreign policy consensus, but how you can get like the Biden campaign today announcing a letter of support from members of every administration from Reagan on of his foreign policy. And that's wild, it would be very hard to, and you could find some domestic policies that have been shared across all of those, but it's really striking in foreign policy how insulated it is from public pressure. And the side effect of that, which is, which is deeply relevant here, is you can really shape foreign policy a lot by shaping, you, the presidency shapes it the most, and the presidency is uh, fairly malleable in the post-Citizens United world, but certainly before that too to little influence games and especially to sort of this kind of unchecked lobbying isn't even quite the right word, just the unchecked sort of influence of money, especially 
if you even, like the president survived an impeachment challenge for a host of reasons, but among them, right, is the House didn't feel like it could push hard enough on corruption as a factor, which is madness, right? The whole thing that actually came down was about a very explicit asked for quid pro quo over U.S. arms authorized by Congress for election support, right? That should be very clearly like a sort of attempted like extortion and corruption and with with a whole lot going on. And even in the sense of just doing it like domestically, even without the the possibility that there is another power trying to influence this, you have a very weird and alien process and running a sort of impeachment on a lot of the technicality of it, I think, hit the same problems with the anti-democratic nature of foreign policy, where it's pretty removed from people. And in that space, what you get instead, right, this is why like the, you get outsized policy influence by funding think tanks versus like, say, funding down ballot House candidates, though you can certainly get, states can certainly get influence that way too, is that there's really a lot uh, a, a little bit of money goes really far in Washington if you're working in a space where it's really hard for like people to get upset and react against in a meaningful, electoral, accountable way. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's really an especially smart point about the role of corruption in kind of limiting Congress's ability, even, even among some Democrats and certainly among Republicans, to hold the president accountable for anything. And really, there's been a crisis of accountability going back, you know, two decades now, at least, for all kinds of things in Washington. But I think that that basic interest that your average uh, member of Congress or maybe your average elected official at any level of government, you know, has in, in the status quo that permits, you know, an enormous amount of legal corruption and sometimes these extremes of illegal corruption. I mean, Trump is such a, <laughs> Trump is such an almost comical figure in that he, in a, in a system rife with legal corruption, he and the people around him managed to break laws anyway. As we've witnessed with uh, Steve Bannon this week, they're just kind of, you know, they, they just love to do crimes. And of course, Washington has gotten to the point where even when they've blatantly done crimes and everyone can see they've done crimes, it's very hard to hold them accountable anyway because that's how, how tolerant we are of corruption. And so, you know, with Trump and, and with Russiagate, for instance, you know, a narrative that emerged from kind of hardcore Russiagaters is that Trump was a, a Manchurian candidate who was, you know, programmed for decades to, by, by the Soviet Union to wreck our democracy and, you know, has a, a deep belief in, in Vladimir Putin. And, you know, I mean, there are, there are little bits that you can kind of spin into that, like that, that, that the KGB might have had a file on him in the 80s when he, you know, took trips there or that, you know, Trump will praise any uh, leader who says anything nice about him. And so he likes Putin. But, you know, the bottom line is Russiagate didn't happen because Trump is a sleeper agent. It happened because he and his people are incredibly corrupt and Russia was able to take advantage of that in ways that they, you know, were brazen that they probably couldn't have gotten away with with anybody else. You know, the someone like the, the United Arab Emirates is is a little more sophisticated in how it tries to sway policymakers, and they're really good at it. Policymakers in both parties, but you know, the 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 collapse of anything like norms or or you know a pretense of upholding norms in the GOP allowed for this especially blatant 
example of, of corrupt influence by a foreign government. And, you know, you get the sense part of why Trump or Don Jr. or anyone haven't been held accountable. I mean, a lot of it is just, is just, you know, the blunt fact of Republican power, but it's also this, this kind of idiot defense they've, they've played effectively where they, it didn't even really occur to them that they were doing something that was functionally treasonous because, you know, they don't think about such things. But as with, with all things Trump, they're really just saying the quiet part loud. And the quiet part is the routine corruption that everyone in Washington takes for granted and that allows for all kinds of foreign interference, like Kelsey was describing. How much do we... Like how how much do we account for like the war on terror and being in Iraq and Afghanistan for over twenty years to this? Because it seems like like I'm I'm trying to in my head figure out where accountability just went out the door completely. Right. So you know, you have this insular foreign policy national security making apparatus, but it just seems like there was a point where accountability went out the door. And it just seems like that was during the Bush administration and the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and now both wars have gone on for 20 years. So, you know, it, it seems like how do, we, how do we factor in that? How do we factor in that we're in this sort of political forever war state when it comes to national security? I'll take a stab at it. So I think one thing that uh, certainly comes up is like why it's you have to find ask why the war is sustained. And I think the the lazy question and like when we've seen we've seen Trump actually go explicitly like he's maintaining a base in Syria for the express purpose of uh, making sure that the U.S. oversees the process of oil extraction into U.S. markets. There was, I believe, Foreign Policy had a recent piece looking at it as like a, a plausible case of the violation of the international laws against plunder. But before Trump, right, this is a the, the continuation of the war there, is that you have to, what is going on, and there's countries with vested interests in the U.S. presence there. And it's really a tremendous amount of like, some of it is just bitter anger. I think uh, still you see this a lot in like the whole deconstruction of the Iran deal is there's some anger held over and there's people who just fundamentally in power do not believe that um, Iran as it presently exists should exist and they'll do weird maneuvers around that. But I think part of it too is that it's pretty lucrative to be, to make a career in the policy circuit and lucrative in DC terms, but not necessarily the most outright lucrative, talking about like the the interests of a strong US hegemonic presence there. But that's what the war is serving, right? It's not particularly serving an American presence or American, I mean, American interest is a wacky term, but it's really not particularly supporting the interest of people within the United States in any real tangible sense to maintain this war for 19 years. But for the countries in the region, having a U.S. presence there factors hugely into the security posture. And if they are benefiting from the continued presence of the United States and they have an interest in paying people to argue that it's good and it's good in a 
sort of international order sense or it's in a hegemonic sense, hegemonic sense. There's a whole lot of that sort of baked in. Yeah, I think you would have a really hard time articulating from certainly when Obama takes office forward, like never mind the larger war on terror, try to explain the scale of U.S. deployments in Afghanistan since the surge that, you know, I think a pretty conventional holding, you know, one that even Joe Biden agreed with at the time is that is that Obama basically got rolled by by General Petraeus and Hillary Clinton and the blob, as it were, in, into expanding our presence in Afghanistan. And that was in, what, 2009 or 10, and, and now it's 2020, and we're still there. And, and it's a war that's now spanned, you know, almost, almost five presidential terms under three very different presidents. So, like, it, you know, at the beginning, you could say we're in Afghanistan because of 9-11 and because uh, the Taliban sheltered al-Qaeda. And so, you know, we decided to take them out and, uh, and to try to get bin Laden. And, you know, there are a lot of flaws with that and with how we did it in practice, but it, it's something that I think intuitively made sense to most people at the time. And, and for, you know, a while afterwards when Americans were traumatized and, and fixated on 9-11. But how do you explain it now? I mean, it has become a, a self-perpetuating operation. I mean, it has built careers, as Kelsey said, I, I, I think for I assume for the arms industry, for anyone trying to rise in the senior ranks of the U.S. military, you know, with, with Petraeus, he, he tried out this counterinsurgency strategy that I'm sure Kelsey can talk about more lucidly than I can in Iraq and then figured, you know, it was supposedly a hit there. So let's try it in Afghanistan too. And then there's like a whole generation of NATSEC professionals in and out of the military who, you know, who, who decide to build careers off that. And, and then, yeah, there are foreign governments too, who kind of get used to this being the status quo of, of the U.S. kind of awkwardly holding this, this country together. And, you know, they're not paying any price for, for American or Afghan casualties. So, so why not, you know, just kind of let it keep going. And, you know, Never mind what it does to Afghanistan. I think you know most Americans would have a really hard time following any of these kind of internecine policy debates about why we're there. You know, beyond that, it had something to do with nine eleven long ago. But millions of Americans are are directly uh, affected by the reality. I mean, not just by the trillions of dollars we've sunk into this, but by you know the people who, who are physically or mentally broken or, or killed and, and the impact that has on their families and their communities. And there's really no link. I mean, that is what Afghanistan or Iraq mean now to regular people. And there's really no link between what those people are experiencing and, and what decisions get made inside the Beltway. I think just to build on that a little bit too, right? Like I was was curious as they had um, at the DNC last night, they had a montage of, of of service members talking about like what it meant to be deployed and what the hardship of that service. And it was almost wholly disconnected from any sense of what the war is or the war has been about. It's just like a thing that you know is hard. And that's been sort of true of the military profession fundamentally. But what is 
profoundly weird about our era is that the United States has sustained a war abroad, an active shooting war abroad for 19 years, almost 20 years. It'll be 20 years next month. And we had like, there were three US casualties in Afghanistan this year who were 21 at the time of their death, which means they were like toddlers on 9-11. It's sort of mind boggling to comprehend what is the point of doing this, why are people, why, why is the U.S. still sustaining this if you look at it from a perspective of like the interest of the people who are going abroad to fight or the people who are in theory being nominally protected by this? So you have to look at the state a different way. You have to look at what is driving state decisions and that brings you back to the whole picture that rather than foreign policy adhering as some like expression, filtered expression of what people living in the United States who vote want. It's distorted by the tremendous amount of money that pours in to shape it and disconnect it from any strong feelings people may have about the meaning or value of continuing these sort of endless wars. Yeah, I mean, I, I recently rewatched um, Starship Troopers, and I'm thinking about how at the end of that movie, which is a, a kind of brilliant satire of, of military culture, they, they've basically shown that this is going to be a forever war, that its justification for fighting these space bugs is, is not what we were sort of led to think it was at all and is much more morally dubious, to say the least, and that it's just never going to end, and that it's really about organizing the whole society around just sending off, you know, a, a new crop of, of kids to get blown up every year in a kind of patriotic fervor, and, 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 and you know, organizing the whole values of a society around that. And you could really see that at the DNC this week. Like, the only times I can recall that Iraq and Afghanistan and, and the military and the wars came up was as, you know, something that our, our brave, heroic young troops of all backgrounds, you know, serve in and need support and they need, you know, their veterans benefits and they need a president who cares about them and who, who had his own son deployed and, you know, which is all good and true as far as it goes. But it, yeah, there, it's like, there's, there's no question of why we're there, of winding these wars down, of why they started in the first place. Of, you know, the, it's like those issues are off the table in a democratic convention, and one in which the democratic platform actually reflects a lot of progressive and anti-war language. A lot of that made it in uh, that, that people, you know, that I think Kelsey and I both identify with and talk to and, you know, bounce ideas off of. Had, had some influence on that language, but I didn't see a, a trace of that in, in the DNC. I mean, I didn't watch the whole thing, but all the major speeches and segments I watched, did, did you catch anything, Kelsey, that indicated like that, that, that that's at all part of the message that we might want to end the forever war? I not only did I not, and like there's the possibility that it was there and I missed some of it while angrily tweeting about the rest of it, right. uh, but there was definitely, like, they brought Colin Powell on to, to speak, and he has in the past, um, he endorsed, I believe, both Obama runs, and I believe he endorsed Hillary in, in 16. So he's, we know sort of where he, he sits regarding domestic politics, but they brought him on to speak. And it's wild to me that when so much of the animating energy in the sense that there was that foreign policy was a major electoral issue, right? This is how it should filter in, right? There was outcry about 
the mishandling of the Iraq war and even its existence that fed into the 2006 uh, Democratic sweep of the House. It fed into um, Obama's election in 08. But what happened since, right, is that in 2012, Obama ran on, caref on capably handling the war rather than, he sort of ran on both ending it and capably handing it, handling it. And in 2016, we see Hillary running on a like faithful stewardship of the forever war. And so by 2020, we have Colin Powell speaking um, in, to endorse Biden, but he like is like one of the most crucial figures to how the Iraq war went from like a mad scheme of the Bush administration to being executed and sold as policy. And so it's wild to think that the interest of the party, which again, the, the time that Biden was elected as vice president came on the heels of a assumed rejection of this war. And then that it continued, despite that, shows a kind of brokenness in the process or a disconnect in the process. And it's, um, I know you wanted to like ask about the term failed state. And I think what we maybe, uh, to sort of transition to that, you have to look at what the state is doing that continues to work and why it continues to work in that way. Because I would say that this, like the, this policy apparatus is failing the interests of people who are expressing discontent, uh, discontent with these wars, but it is certainly preserving the state in some capacity. And that's what's so strange and weird about this is that you have kind of itself through lobbying, through um, the industry around it, through countries that have the capital to convince people it's better to keep the U.S. deployed abroad for whatever their interests are. And so there's this weird process happening within a democracy that is fundamentally anti-democratic. Yeah, you know, well, Sina, do you want to transition us to this failed state topic? Because I, I think it's a rich one, but I, I, I don't want to get off course before I weigh in on it. No, no, let's, let's do it. Let's, that's a really interesting question because I think it was Daniel Bessner who on Twitter was saying, I couldn't tell if he was having a debate with himself, a debate with material, or just like a debate with other people on Twitter, but he had said something like, somebody had posed the question, is the U.S. a failed state? And then he responded something that it's not necessarily a failed state because it still does military and police action very well. It does that. It does these very specific activities very well. Never mind, every, it, it's failing everything else, but it's not a failed state is his sort of argument or what I understand to be his argument. So for us, for us in this conversation, does the idea of saying that the U.S. is a failed or failing state kind of misrepresent the problem? You know, is, you know, as Kelsey kind of pointed out, we're, you're doing military action very well. It's just that we keep doing it to the detriment of other things that the United States could be doing. You know, I mean, do we understand this issue as the state failing us, the citizenry, but not a failed state is sort of the question here. Well, I, I, I sort of agree with the spirit of Daniel's point. He's a, a friend and, and influence on, I'm sure, both of us. And, and, and you know, we all kind of are in the same circle. So I, I speak fondly of Dan here. But I, I actually, I sort of agree with the larger spirit of what he's saying, but maybe disagree with the specifics a little bit. 
because I, I think it maybe overstates our, our competence at military actions and policing. I mean, there's, there's no question we funnel a lot of money into both of those things and, uh, you know, invest a lot of resources we could be investing into anything else. And there are certain kinds of things that our military and police forces are good at, like our police forces are are good at putting huge numbers of black and brown people behind bars. Our military is good at, you know, targeted assassinations of, of particular leaders or various kinds of pyrotechnic displays. But, you know, if the purpose of a, of a police force is to, you know, maintain a, a kind of safe and functioning social order, which is obviously debatable, but if it is, then I wouldn't say uh, we're great at that. And if the purpose of our military is to, is to sort of like, you know, boss the world around effectively, I would say, and, and, you know, win wars quickly and cleanly, then I wouldn't say we're great at that either. And, you know, this, the demonstrations we've seen this summer, which, you know, which which I very much support, you know, have have really put a lot of police departments and and the kind of whole law and order apparatus on its heels a little bit. I mean, I don't want to overstate it. I I have no doubt that a, a backlash and a retrenchment is coming. But but it's shown that that those forces are fragile too, and I think COVID has also exposed how fragile both of these institutions are. If you look at, at I cited it in a recent Nation piece, but the aircraft carrier incident, Brett Crozier, early in the, the pandemic, I think really spoke to how the military is not really prepared for this problem at all. But I think you know where I where I sort of agree with the larger spirit of what Dan is saying is if his point is you know, the U.S. isn't a failed state because the purpose of the U.S. state isn't actually to do what, you know, you might think it is to to serve the best interests of the American people or of freedom around the world, depending on how you look at it. You know, I agree with that. And I, I think the question is, you know, what is the de facto purpose of the American state right now? And I think the answer I was trying to put forward in the foreign policy piece is it's a, it's a kind of giant money laundering scheme for the global oligarchy. And military and policing are critical parts of that, but, but the money kind of flows through them too and deploys them to inefficient aims too. I mean, it's not clear to me, for instance, when, when you know, the, the blob was begging Obama to do airstrikes on Assad and then he actually did, then Trump actually did do a, a brief airstrike on an empty airfield for Assad. You know, I'd be hard pressed to explain not only how that benefits the American people or how that benefits anyone in Syria, but also how it benefits capital, really, except as a kind of like, you know, marginal demonstration of of why we should keep building missiles, I guess. But it seems to me like it had more to do with satisfying, you know, Oh, this sort of apparatus of think tanks and lobbying groups and stuff who who have money from Gulf states flowing through them and and kind of you know wanted to to score some symbolic win. Tell me if you disagree with any of that, Kelsey. Yeah, so I think and the the airstrike in Syria is a great example because there was a tremendous amount of lobbying in Obama's second term for what would like setting up a no-fly zone or what would it mean for the U.S. to intervene in Syria? And I want to state up front, right, it's a absolute, like the, the Assad regime has very clearly used weapons against its own people. It's done horrific, horrific things. It's done, a, it's waged a very long, very bloody campaign of violence against the notion of having to 
sort of face any kind of public accountability from its own population. Um, and let me, let me affirm that as well. We are not tankies or Assadists here. We, we, we exist in a world of facts and moral reasoning. Go on, Kelsey. Yeah, so, but with that, there were, there were very serious examinations of what would have happened or what would it take if the United States decided to bring the full force of its military against Assad? Would it, could it have forced in an extraction? Could they have set up like sort of the no-fly zones that we saw to um, some limited uh, utility in um, Iraq between the Iraq wars? Um, there's a really profoundly thorough and thoughtful study that was funded by, I believe it was the Institution for the Prevention of Atrocity. I'm trying to remember the name, but it was at the, it was through the Holocaust Museum. And it was this really careful look at like, what does it take to, what would, would the war have had anything like the humanitarian impact that op-ed pages claimed it would have. And the, the study was really uh, conclusive that there did not look like there was a great way to use force to achieve sort of the stated op-ed aims that were promised. And then there was a whole cycle of pushback of investigation of like, is this really claiming it? Can they, should they make such a forceful claim? Are they looking the other way? Are they excusing the Obama administration for not acting? And, and that sort of played out in the, in the later parts of Obama's term. And then we get to the Trump administration, which threw missiles at a runway for no clear reason, which holds a fort um, in the interior of Syria that can only be resupplied by air, where there have been plausible and documented like proxy shootouts with Russian private security contractors to hold it. And there is nothing that feels like a strategic aim there. There's no, and not even like, we're in a weird astrategic time, but this is among the most astrategic things that exist. And so if there is an explanation of what the U.S. presence is there, part of it might be that it's just very hard if the president decides that he wants to claim the oil because it's a fundamentally unaccountable foreign policy, that he will just do that. But the other reason, right, the reason that this is sort of acceded to is that there is a, there are countries who feel they are in a stronger position with a strong U.S. military, or maybe not even strong, but with a sizable U.S. military presence in the region for various reasons. Like they part of the reason I think that Iran sits at the heart of this weird sort of long-running proxy war between parts of the U.S. government is that Iran is not a country that is, it is, Iran is a country formally excluded from global trade if it at all touches the United States. There's elaborate sanctions regimes. There's second, secondary sanctions, which mean not just if you do business with Iran, but if you do business with someone who does business with Iran, you're in a weird place and you could be cut off from like dollar access. There's this whole thing going on and it doesn't, it can't just serve the purposes of capital though, maybe, but really it's that the U.S. has made kind of its access to the dollar synonymous with supporting a weird constellation of foreign policy agreements, which also are supported by the kind of companies who lobby to set what foreign policy is. It's a, it's a tangled mess. And I think if you look at it as fundamentally stemming from corruption and not just like that there, I mean, there is a constituency in the U.S. who wants to just bomb a lot of stuff, but I don't think that is sufficient to justify or explain how this is happening without the equal component or greater component of this corrupt money flowing 
to hold up these weird and counterproductive policies. And I actually want to piggyback on that a little. I think that, well, I want to introduce a, a slightly new paradigm, I guess, which is that, you know, Kelsey alluded earlier to this kind of history of the formation of the elite national security state at the end of World War II around the executive branch, something our, our friend Stephen Wertheim has a, a book coming out about. And, uh, you know, and, and I think, so you could, you could do kind of one version of the, his, the modern history of U.S. foreign policy that I think would satisfy a lot of kind of standard left anti-imperialists and would satisfy me to a point that, you know, the U.S. has been a, a bad and violent actor in the world since at least the end of World War II and has, you know, sought hegemony and, and domination and toppled governments and so on. And that's all true. But at the same time, I think most of us who study political economy or domestic politics at all understand that something dramatic changed in the United States in the mid-70s, give or take, and that the United States is in some fundamental ways a different country since the mid-70s or 1980 than it was from, from World War II to, to then. So, you know, that the mid-20th century U.S. has it shouldn't be idealized at all, but it has a different conception of itself, a different role in the world, a different social contract than uh, what followed. And without romanticizing the the uh, preceding paradigm at all, I think when we say that capital has determined U.S. foreign policy, I mean, in a sense, that's always been true, but but the nature of capitalism has changed. And I think the nature of foreign policy has gradually changed with it, you know, because there was a time, I think, when you could argue, I mean, the cliche is, you know, what's, what's good for GM is good for America. There was a time when you could argue that, you know, U.S. national interest was the interest of U.S. industrial policy. Now, that's not necessarily great if you're on the receiving end of U.S. imperialism, but, you know, you know toppling governments in Central America and, and the Caribbean to form banana republics is obviously a terrible thing to do to them. But uh, if you're an American consumer and it means you get cheap bananas, then, you know, you're getting something out of it. You know, that's, I don't mean to justify it, but I mean to say that, like, you know, the <laughs> United Fruit Company or whatever was, was in some broad sense in line with regular Americans' sense of their own interest. That might be a controversial point, but, but you know, let, let's roll with it for now. The argument I would make is that since the U.S. has kind of abandoned mid-century, you know, New Deal meets post-war dividend industrial policy, and since it has allowed local economies across the country to basically decay and rot, and since it has kind of made its real, the real engines of its economy a handful of extremely lucrative and monopolistic elite services concentrated in a few very expensive cities like New York or San Francisco, you know, th that sort of hollowing out of, of, of middle America and of kind of the, the mainstream or main street American economy has a, has a foreign policy corollary, which is that there's almost no discernible link between the various foreign policy projects we pursue around the world. And, you know, not just the interests of, of regular Americans, but the interests of sort of American capital as an American project, you know, like it's just serving capital, period. 
I mean, it's, it's serving the interests of people who run giant factories in, in China as much as, as it's serving the interests of, of middle-class Americans, probably more. I don't know. I think, yeah, to just build on that a little bit more, right, is that this whole, this whole disconnect of, and not that like capital and national interest is a weird and gross sort of thing, and you can plot it through the U.S. history of people who at least sold interventions in countries to th over their democratic regimes on the extent that we will like, extract this for value for these people. And what we now have is we have capital sort of exclusively extracting for itself without even a lip service or promise of a good on the other side, right? Like there is extraction at every stage of it. The corruption is not just that like, like it helps to keep like a canal open and so we're placing U.S. military forces here. It's that the people who are negotiating the deals are pocketing stuff and it's that the, well not people, I mean, I mean, like it's not like the public servants, but like the kind of sort of like your career appointed ambassadors who are like, not your career appointed, your campaign appointed ambassadors, sort of the, you, you get to have this like luxury thing as a reward for this. There's grift happening sort of consistently throughout the foreign policy ecosystem. And it really leads to, it's a lot of personal enrichment happening on top of decisions that are hugely momentous for people's lives and it's you've saw it with like capital sort of flight from the u.s to countries where regulations were weak but regulations were weak also sort of held in check by a like u.s wto regime and something we're seeing and this is something i'm like covering in my reporting beats is this weird idea that we need to start building up like u.s tech manufacturing capacity again and it's very it's it's coming from parts of senate that are very downstream from feeling oh, well, we've given up too much of a direct sort of material power by having factories abroad. And they're only particularly interested in industrial policy in the sense that it can be framed as against a geopolitical rival. They're not particularly worried about like the goods themselves or like where the capital is flowing. They want to make sure that there's some national interest put back into it, which is weird and kind of flows into when, when Fukuyama wrote that whole, that whole end of history, it was talking about this conception, he and failed to anticipate the idea that a reaction to transnational capital would be people backing nationalist nationalists against oligarchs or nationalists who sort of brought their local kleptocracies into their nationalist project rather than sort of looting the country without having something to offer people. Yeah, I think that's really astute. And I think I wanted to also amend something I said earlier. I think there is, or I think a defender of the current neoliberal order would say that Americans and, and other citizens of developed Western countries, regular citizens, I mean, do get a, a real benefit from this order, which is cheap consumer goods, cheap consumer goods, which are manufactured around the world and especially in China. And of course, cheap oil and gas from the Middle East and, and elsewhere. And, you know, as we've seen a, a social contract where the main perk is cheap consumer goods is one that, you know, even if the average person has a nicer TV or a nicer phone or uh, cheaper clothes from H&M or whatever than they had uh, a generation ago, which is true, 
you know, it's not a system that gives people a sense of dignity or control or a stake in their own lives or a stake in their, their government, really. But that's basically what has bought off regular Americans and regular Britons and so on, is, is, is cheap goods, you know, which they need because they have stagnant wages and because there's no real purpose except to buy those cheap goods. And so, you know, meanwhile, the, the sort of global structure that facilitates this, you know, has always had a giant contradiction in terms, which is it's supposed to be, you know, going back to kind of 90s optimism in Fukuyama, this, this global neoliberal democratic capitalist order. The reality is the, you know, the, the sort of global trade pact aspects of it got way ahead of, of any other aspects. And so the workshop of the entire world is the country that is home to a quarter of, of the global population, China, which isn't remotely democratic and which there was some kind of naive hope in the 90s would become more democratic, but by most accounts has become more autocratic, more of a surveillance state, more oppressive, and increasingly, as Kelsey was just saying, more violently nationalistic, as, as you know, is borne out in, in what's happening to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang right now or for that matter, to um, the, the citizens of Hong Kong with their limited liberties. And, you know, we're in this very surreal moment. Really, we've been in it in some form or other for 20 or 30 years, but it, it, I feel like it's been becoming harder and harder to, to ignore, where the U.S. Is, is completely schizophrenic when it comes to China policy, because there is this big push for a kind of new Cold War global confrontation with China that you can see from powerful people in government. And, and you can see Trump and Democrats, for that matter, stoking that kind of nationalist rhetoric. And at the same time, all of the most powerful corporations are deeply invested in China and basically do whatever it says, whether that's Silicon Valley or Hollywood or Wall Street or whatever. And, and, and that, you know, has an effect on Washington, too, obviously. So the U.S. seems like we're, we're sort of hurtling toward a great power confrontation with the country that makes all our stuff and that our ruling elite are, are completely entwined with. And we also seem convinced that we are a free and democratic country, whereas they are an oppressive and autocratic country without ever considering that to the extent that we've you know, become totally intertwined, and it hasn't made them more democratic, maybe it's made us more like them. And you can see a lot of ways that it has. And, and th this is all to say that, you know, US foreign policy is kind of incoherent, if you try to, to discern a guiding purpose to it. It's, it's basically just a mess of different interests bouncing off each other, and producing increasingly dangerous crises. So, this, so I want to maybe switch footing to an interrelated topic that we've kind of touched on, which is the idea of identity. So what happens to identity when everything else around you is in a state of collapse, right? So I feel like our conversation has taken we've had like sort of three time periods, right? The World War II, the Cold War, the War on Terror, and then now. And it almost feels like that identities have changed almost radically through that period where 
during the World War II and the Cold War, it was this idea of the social contract that the state would, you know, if you work hard enough, uh, then you could buy a house, then you could have this American dream. And now obviously for a lot of us millennials and Zoomers, that doesn't exist. And then, you know, it, you have that. And then you also have this other trend of the shifting nature of nationalism, right? So take, you know, make America great again, MAGA, whatever, you know, there's these sort of different threads that you can pull on within make America great again, you know, the severe nationalism that I think David, you described of being against China, you know, kind of hitting China back. And then there's also this other thread of white nationalism, that sort of hard tinged Stephen Miller against immigration, and sort of limiting immigration, having a harsh sort of view of immigration. So, you know, circling back to my original question, what is becoming of identities in collapse? You know, are things getting more extreme? Are they getting less extreme? You know, should we view nationalism as kind of restorative and sort of rebuilding the state? Or should we view it as destructive, as sort of something that will devolve into a, for lack of a better phrase, a white nationalist, white supremacist state? Well, so I wouldn't, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't start from talking about the way that these identities sort of how they play with material conditions. And one of the things I think that is so striking about the return and sort of the, the presence and dominance of this, like this autocratic right nationalism is that by and large, it plays fairly nice with capital that the the sort of funding you need for for campaigns or for support or for even or even just like access to business or businesses business owners willing to put resources behind various national projects is it's a by and large a lot more comfortable with a philosophy that wants to mostly leave capital B and instead directs its anger and its its focus of who the enemy is or the threat to the state sort of internally towards towards various uh, populations it deems suspect or it redirects people sort of ex- their anger sort of externally but sort of externally in kind of a useless way or in a way that they can use to like build a business on this and i think one of the reasons we've seen right like the collapse the sort of collapse of american gradual collapse of american labor and it's sort of like gradual reemergence now was instrumental into how the neoliberal turn happened is that the state was able to break labor and it was able to do it through a a host of decisions that that were uh, short-sighted in the cases of the carter presidency and were deliberately malicious in the case of the reagan and uh reagan clinton and bush presidencies um, with Obama having a somewhat mixed record and a very clearly anti-labor policy from the Trump administration. When we see this happening is that if you exclude the possibility of acceding the gains of productivity to workers and of meaningful sort of democratic participation in the workplace and in society, then what you are left with really is you need to motivate people in some other way to support a political project and not that this is wholly that, right? Like the, the whole history of the United States is bound up in marshalling, in an intertwined sort of marshalling of race and capital as a, as a cudgel to wield against various forces. But 
you don't really, you, you have to put it somewhere and you can't get there if you are meaningfully listening to the, what people are missing in their daily lives. And if you give them an enemy to blame instead, that's a lot more acceptable to parts of capital than it is to uh, say maybe the take-home pay for CEO should be somewhat less. Yeah, I mean, I think that I agree with all that. I think that I want to say this carefully because I don't like, I, I never want anyone to to have a headline with my name under it that says like, you know, in defense of nationalism or something like that, or, you know, why the left should make its peace with nationalism. I think nationalism has been an incredibly destructive force and certainly today is an incredibly destructive force. But I do think that forms of kind of affirmative and cooperative civic identity are important and that sim- that that simply being post-national multinational transnational has denied most people outside of a, a sort of small and capitalistic elite a real sense of of purpose and identity and stake in the system and and then i think the right has capitalized on that by offering a very crude nationalism that's totally rooted in resentment and hatred and xenophobia and uh, toxic masculinity and and has you know peddled versions of that all over the world and you know in in many different countries with many distinct circumstances you know how much do Hungary or the Philippines or Brazil or the United States really have in common, but they, they have this in common because they're all full of people who I think, you know, don't, don't really know who they are or uh, what they're supposed to be doing or why their lives matter in the context of, of globalized neoliberalism. So I think, you know, I don't want to call it nationalism, but I think that any humane and decent left has to find ways to make people feel that they are part of organic communities and not just a global brotherhood or, you know, maybe brotherhood's the wrong word here, but not just kind of, you know, part of a global community, which is a a wonderful idea that I think most of us can support on some kind of very abstracted level, but, you know, a community of people of all backgrounds who are around them, who they can interact with, who, who they can have real material relationships with and who they can regard as as part of their extended family in a sense and that you know if if people don't feel that i think we move to a very dark place where the only real options are a kind of uh bloodless neoliberalism that that you know commodifies everything and 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 enriches a very small number of people and kind of puts everyone else in a in a kind of horrifying purgatory or this this right-wing so-called populist counterpart which is i don't know it's like it's like fascism's fail son you know it's like it's 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 like a a a sadder uglier more half-assed version of of 20th century fascism and and it's it's you know i'll i'll pick the bloodless neoliberalism over that but as kelsey said they play well together and they end up i think cyclically reinforcing each other. I think it's 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 bloodless neoliberalism that gave us the rise of 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 this kind of contemporary far right. And as we've seen in this week's Democratic Convention, people who are exhausted with four years of being governed this way are now going to turn back to what kind of 
bloodless neoliberalism. And, uh, you know, some people would probably dispute my characterization of the Democratic Party in 2020 as being just that. It, it certainly performs diversity and community in ways that, you know, even a cynic like me can find compelling. But, but I think a lot of that is, is just marketing. Well, I think I want to um, build on that a little too, which is I think part of what is so striking and what like makes the United States feel like like this sick man of North America, like this sort of like we are now experiencing broadly in the American public a, f- a feeling of being on the receiving end of capital is that there were several decades where by and large, many Americans were somewhat detached from it. There were always parts of the United States that were more vulnerable, more targeted for this, and they were all very much on the lines of vulnerabilities or racial targeting um, or a lot of stuff like that. But we've, but it's also, it happened broadly. There are many other states that you could look at. And you see this when people who like study comparative politics, like look at like, well, I studied like state collapse um, in Latin America, or like they studied it in Eastern Europe. And like, I see all these things and that, and it's true that you can study the way the political actions are replicating domestically as they did abroad but the essential and essential part of the piece is the way that first u.s and then other like global capital facilitated a lot of that and built and sort of practiced what it is right like the the experience of a private equity company sort of acquiring an asset stripping it for parts and then leaving everyone inside of the sol on a sort of microcosm of a company is sort of macro experienced on several countries um, and we're experiencing it now here domestically and I think part of what is um, compelling about this moment and certainly was compelling about 2018 and 2019 and we're seeing as a live tension within the Democratic Party is between people who figured out their politics by building that sort of within that sort of organic community and coming up through that and now to not just win House elections, but win like House re-elections like um, Ilhan Omar or AOC. And we're seeing it expand. And there's a tension between that sense of what politics can be and do and sort of an old guard, which kind of felt that the furthest you could get within domestic politics was a holding action against the right. And that's that's really the moment we're in where like the, the sick man in North America does not have to be sick forever and it's very unclear what will be when we emerge out of it but i think that fight within the democratic party is going to be somewhat instrumental in what possibilities we get other than this sort of hair invoke white nationalism as an alternative yeah and you know when you bring up these democratic these kind of left or progressive democratic primary challengers who you know are are my kind of you know bit of optimism in in the midst of all this despair. It's really interesting because the, you know, the two really prominent examples from uh, New York City, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Jamal Bowman, who who both represent parts of the Bronx and then parts of other places, you know, both won their races, not only as younger people of color against older white male politicians, although that's, that's certainly a big part of it, but also by emphasizing that they were in and of their communities now, whereas the people they were running against had kind of checked out of, of the Bronx and, and Queens and Westchester County 
a long time ago and had basically set up shop uh, in the Beltway as kind of permanent Washington creatures. And, you know, AOC is a bartender and Jamal Bowman is a, is a what, a middle school principal. And these are people who, who live in and feel real organic connections to their communities. And, you know, they're not nationalists. They're not American nationalists. They're not New York nationalists or Bronx nationalists. They're not saying everyone has to be Puerto Rican or everyone has to be African American. They represent very diverse communities and they speak to everyone. But they are saying there is a community here and we're all part of that community. And you can't just be a kind of absentee, you know, representative who's who who's there to kind of phone in the community's baseline votes, you know, and and keep the machine humming along. Uh, you know that that message that they really emphasize that that you know we actually are here now and and we are actually from and of all the people here is I think what the left is going to need to, you know, really assert itself through what's left of democratic processes. This is kind of interesting because, like, when I think about alternate visions of foreign policy, of, like, even even at this sort of smallest sort of, let's change the Foreign, you know, Actor Registration Act, FARA, let's you know, change AML, let's change all this stuff. It, it, it seems like that that alternate vision, like, is never, never really gets loud and popular. And I don't quite understand, quite understand why, right? So, like, to go back to the conversation, the part of the conversation we just had, it's, it's almost like with the right, they have all this supporting infrastructure, Right. So the transition from the Reagan right, the George W. Bush right to Trump has been, for the most part, somewhat smooth. Like there hasn't been any sort of bumps or real like debate or arguments for the most part. Right. You can obviously there's space that we can disagree on that. But with the left, it almost seems like. Like you have the left that's saying like, we should really change foreign policy, but that's a very small part of it. And then the rest of it is like Brookings or these other think tanks that have, have the ability to garner much more attention and much more political leverage. So, you know, at the most basic level, my question is, how do you change? What, how do you change and sort of bring about an alternate vision of foreign policy if foreign policy is so linked to political leverage and that political leverage is so linked to wealth and capital. Well, I think this is the moment where I plug fellow travelers blog, <laughs> um, which is a, a modest all volunteer project to try and create some space for left foreign policy, but more than obviously the project I'm associated with. Um, I think the, the obstacle is uh, tangible and real. There was a really good interview that was published in Jacobin this week, speaking of left media spaces, but it was by Daniel Bessner, who we've mentioned, um, interviewing Matt Duss, who is the Bernie Sanders foreign policy advisor. And it was a really interesting look at what it takes to sort of build a career as someone in left foreign policy to the extent that Duss has been able to do it. But one of the sort of 
implied obstacles right now is that it's hard. There is there is money to argue for a continued, say, U.S. presence in the in the Arabian Gulf, or in the Persian Gulf, or like that the that Bahrain really needs to like keep a fleet near there. There's money for many of these things, and I'm picking on that region because it's the one I know more. But there's 800 U.S. bases. There's lots of little and bigger interests sort of that are interconnected even to just the local economy of these U.S. bases. And it's very hard to fundamentally have, take the same kind of money and support like kind of the same full-time work without that capital behind you. Now, there are other things. There's projects, there's like the People's Policy Project, there's other groups that do like crowdfunded thing. And that's sort of what you need to kind of create the idea space, but what's really going to happen, I think, and what more than like um, the interest of people having careers writing about this, that is something uh, very dear to David and myself, is you have to have people willing to lead the policy and what they will need once they have the policy, they come into office with policy ideas and understandings that kind of break the DC consensus. And they'll look at other ways to, I think, sort of institute that. And they'll look at, we'll see it in like staffing. We'll see it if we get a administration this decade that is more left, we might see it in some staffing there, or we might see it in congressional or house staffing. And we might see it in work built beyond that. And it'll be possibly work from those like community organizations, because one of the things that is central, right, to AOC's story is not just her connection to the Bronx, but it is her connection to Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican diaspora. And we see it with Ilhan, with the the experience of being a refugee of war in the U.S. and having a tie to that. And what we have tangibly is people who know what it is to be connected to um, like a population kept under U.S. empire in Puerto Rico, a population sort of subject to U.S. wars like in, like in Somalia, and especially people who, despite all that, still came to the U.S. to try and build their lives. There are visions of this, but they are rooted in community. We will see foreign policy, I think, flow from those people who are in office and are working to build it out more than we will see it kind of handed out and written in policy papers by well-funded think tanks that know, well, if you need a talking point on this to win over the skeptical people, here is our like one pager. So we're in a period of transition and things are kind of fucked up right now, right? So like with COVID, the election coming up, the whole biz with the, the postal service. When, when you guys sit down with people who have real strong faith in institutions, right? So people who are like the most extreme of it is just hyper optimism. Everything will turn out okay. Or the middle position would be like, you know, you know, the institutions will fix themselves. Uh, foreign policy will fix itself. Everything will be okay. You know, how do you sort of engage that emotionally intellectually how do you sort of explain to somebody that this is a world-changing crisis and nobody's going to really come to save us maybe other than ourselves or other than you know no 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 external force no hero you know no Mueller no you know Obama there's there's nobody no outside force who's just gonna fix everything how do you how do you engage somebody you know on those points well, I think, you know, I I think I can meet someone like that halfway, actually, because I don't actually believe that, you know, we should finish tearing down our our 
already fragile institutions. I mean, some of them we probably should. I think we could, you know, if there's a way to do away with the Senate and the Electoral College, then I don't think we'd, we'd be losing a thing. I think we'd be gaining a lot. But, you know, more broadly, like, I think, you know, something like Medicare or Social Security are imperfect systems. That doesn't mean we should we should scrap them. You know, I think we're going to have a federal government. It's going to perform some services. You know, we I don't see that we have much realistic or humane choice but to try to, you know, take it over and 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 divert its purpose in some way. And so, you know, on the question of is Obama gonna save us, I mean, if if you empowered someone holding the office Obama held, you know, to make decisions that, that, you know, that could potentially go some way to save us. But the other side of that, including how you get that in the first place, and I don't just mean how you elect, you know, a Democrat instead of a Republican, but how you elect the kind of, of leaders who, who, who really could make a difference is you organize and you agitate. And, you know, if, I mean, I absolutely butcher some MLK quote, so please correct me if either of you know it better. But he has that line about, you know, if you were a drum major, say you were a drum major for for freedom or something like that. And, you know, I think what he means is like, you know, your contribution is is whatever it can be. I mean, if 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 the thing you're good at is is writing persuasively, then then that's that's the way you make a difference. If the thing you're good at is you know, organizing and distributing supplies, then that's the way you make a difference. And, you know, if it's, if it's running a government, then that's how it is. But, you know, we have to like, find that and organize together in a spirit of, 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 you know, helping each other and helping human beings and, and, and not perpetuating this, this, this untenable status quo, destroying our lives and destroying the planet and the future. And I'll, I'll be quick in my, my follow on this, but I think one of the things that is striking and really clear and crucial about the post office in, the, in this moment, right, is that the, we, we saw that the post office was handling the pandemic as well. It is an essential thing. It is a sort of, if you live in a place in the U.S., the post service is essential. And it, and it is universal, right? It is structured to an aim other than business and other than capital. And then we saw an immediate blunt or malicious takeover that has managed to simultaneously impair um, the possibility of the election function norm functioning normally as normally as it could in a pandemic and also like the deep livelihoods and even just access to medicine of people within the country and so there's there's something to having faith in the post office but it's a very clear striking thing, and this is the one I, I intend to use for the next oh, decade or until it's sort of faded from memory and things are hopefully good and functional, is it is, you can have faith in the institution and in the people in the institution to do right, but you also have to look at how, at the avenues for sabotage, at where harm comes in and what it does and how the, what it takes to push back against that, right? It is not enough to order that they stop dismantling machines. It is, you have to like see if you can make the question, call the question of them repairing mail sorting machines, if they can get back in it. And it's really, I think, crucial because it is not, voting wouldn't work normally in this election if the post office is as, continues down the path of sabotage that it has been on. And so it's a really clear 
overlap between sort of an electoral focus on institutions and if you vote, things will get better, and a very clear like material and capital look at things where you can see the sabotage, you can see the sabotage being justified with business logic. And if the sabotage is successful, then the electoral mechanism doesn't work. And so that sort of is my synthesis point that I like to, to hold on to now. And I've seen some action on it. I am cautiously optimistic. And that is sort of where I go at this moment in time with people talking about this. So before we uh, go for the day, so I'm just going to ask one last thought, like one quick last thought, something for us, for me, the audience to chew on. I think the thing to think about, right, is I just to to examine, consider the idea that how things presently exist are because it's sort of intentional and not in like a broad, like creepy, weird conspiracy theory thing, but assume trace back if there's something that doesn't like make sense in our foreign policy or ask what would have to be true for it to make sense. And I think that's a really sort of crucial thing to hold on to and especially consider that capital might be the answer. You know, I've been listening for months to the, uh, and I'm almost fully caught up, incredibly enough, with the um, Revolutions podcast hosted by Mike Duncan, who I had the great privilege of meeting in Paris early this year, right before we stopped being able to travel. And uh, that, you know, is this over 10 seasons, it kind of takes you over comparative studies of major revolutions in the European and transatlantic world, you know, over the last few hundred years. And, and he just kind of goes into them in, in, in great detail and tries to be as thoughtful and neutral as possible. Although you can, you, you know, if you listen carefully, you can kind of hear him drifting leftward over time, as indeed the revolutions do. But, but I think that what I've, one thing I've gotten from them that might be a little controversial in some parts of the left is, uh, you know, I don't think you can have a revolution that doesn't have a mass base, but I also don't think you can have a revolution that only has a mass base. I, I think that revolutions, whether they are positive or not, whether they are successful or not, you know, usually they're, they're successful in some ways and disastrous in others, but, but they seem like they always have a kind of intellectual and elite vanguard, and this is very much including socialist revolutions, communist revolutions. Um, you know, of, of networks of people who, who are studying these questions, debating them, conspiring, making legal and illegal plans, and, and, and generally, you know, usually they're people who, who have a degree of access to the ruling class, but are not literally the ruling class. They don't, they don't call the shots, but they're close enough and educated enough and you know, to, to, to see up close what's wrong with the system. And I think, you know, a group of people like that alone, I don't think can overthrow a society, but I think they will play a crucial role in shaping and directing any mass movement that does occur. And I think a lot of us who identify with the left could stand to be honest, since we very often are disproportionately the kind of people I'm talking about, could stand to be honest about, you know, our, our class subjectivity, our position within all of this, and, and, and the historical role that realistically is expected of us, and, and think about what we are in a position to do 
in the context of the larger changes we want to see in the world. That's awesome. So on that note, my two guests today were David Cleon and Kelsey Atherton. So when we post the show, all the articles and all the, the threads that we mentioned, we'll, we'll post it with the show. Again, thank you so much for being on the show, guys. Thank you. This was really interesting. A pleasure.